Have you ever wanted a safe space where you can just exist? Where, for a moment in time, you can be you with all the intricacies and parts of you that people don't always understand? Welcome to In the Deep, Stories That Shape Us. I'm your host, Zach Stafford, and each episode, we create a space to be you, all of you, in all your messy and complicated glory. Every story shares what it means to be a Black and Latinx man living with different hardships, whether it's the struggle of identity, discrimination, or health, and how they've managed to push forward despite the circumstance. We hope to get closer, even if just a little, to a road of healing and understanding. Hey everyone, welcome back. I want to talk about something that feels personal to me, and I'm sure many of you listening to the show. I'm a Black man from the South, and my whole life I have felt like I've been living between two borders. And I'm not talking about the borders that necessarily physically divide two neighboring countries. I'm talking about borders that people like me learn to navigate daily. The border of two perspectives, two ethnic groups, to craft our own story. Meet John Paul Brammer. He's a columnist and an author. His story really stands out to me because he's a combination of so many identities like myself. He's Mexican. He's American. He's both and neither all at the same time. And he infuses his work with the same idea— that we can be who we are, even if that's a combination of many things that may feel like contradictions to some. I am a person from rural Oklahoma. Uh, I grew up in a Mexican family. My dad is not Mexican, but I don't know that side of my family very well, aside from my dad. I'm very close with my mom's side of the family. We grew up in a very rural part of the country, Uh, My sister and I did. Uh, Very isolated, kind of high up on a hill, not a lot of other houses near us. Very quiet, very flat, very calm, but at the same time, very boring. Um, I spent a lot of time at my abuelo's house in this little place called Cash, C-A-C-H-E. Me and my cousins would go out to the backyard and we would play with the uh, concrete in like the pulverized powdery form that my abuelos had. We would play in the garden. We would get fine, nice sticks to hit each other with. We would tinker with the old piano that they had, this really horrible, dusty, dying piano that they had for like years and years and years. I would sit at this desk and I would tinker with the junk that my abuelo put in there. So it was like big gummy racers, screws, little metal bits and ends, uh, wires. Uh, We went to Texas quite a bit, which is where uh, they had raised my mom. My Mexican family has roots in Chihuahua, Mexico, but they always saw Texas as their big homeland. And so we were there all the time because both my parents worked. My dad was a salesman, and my mom taught English at the high school. Growing up, I was just a bored, Mexican, unknowingly gay child (laughs) just trying to get through my days. Sometimes borders are there for better or worse. Most of the time, we don't realize they're even being created. John Paul explains what these cultural moments meant for him as a kid growing up as Mexican, as American, and what role these memories played in shaping his identity as an adult. 
they think when we're children, there's this narrow window of time where we're more like animals than people and we don't have to question everything. Everything just is what it is and it gets served to us when it does. And we don't think of things as terribly complicated. We used to do the feast day of Our Lady of Guadalupe every December. I would wake up really, really early. My abuelos would take me down to Texas and we would go to the little church where they had regularly used to attend mass. And we would have this really interesting feast day where everyone would bring food from their house and they would have the danzantes, which is people dressed up as like Aztec dancers and the feathers and the regalia. And they would dance down the aisle of this Catholic church. And it was very visually jarring, very like audio wise, too. There were a lot of weird sounds. But you don't think about that as a kid. You just think like oh, they're dancing, and they look pretty, and I'm in this building, and we're going to eat some good food later. And I wasn't trying to find where I started and began in all of it. I was just sort of enjoying it. And I think at some point, unfortunately, you think, wait, what am I? Who am I? What's going on here? In Texas, which is, you know, part of the United States, you have this really interesting display going on in this Catholic church. And how do the people in that church fit in with the United States versus Mexico versus everything else that's happening? And I was so thrilled by it. Everything felt so cool. And it felt like a discovery every day. But then, you know, you encounter a lot of things later in life that make you more jaded, that make you feel like, well, maybe I don't really belong in all that. Yeah, and I feel like you've been called to answer big questions about your culture for years now. And you've been so entangled in that kind of dance over and over. And, you know, it makes me think where you go work at a Mexican grocery store. Yeah. Can you tell the listeners about that? What what happened there? I was very much, pretty much raised by my abuelos. And one thing about my abuelos was just that because I grew up in rural Oklahoma and I didn't have a whole lot of examples of what, like, what does a Mexican look like? What does a Mexican-American look like? What do Mexican people look like? The whole world was my abuelos because they raised me. I grew up with them. I was at their house all the time. And so in my mind, that's what being a Mexican was. And they introduced me to their world, which is a world where Mexican isn't necessarily like an ethnicity. It's almost like a class is what I was kind of taught, which is like we would go to Texas all the time and they'd be like, Mijo, look, all the Mexicans, they make Christmas happen in this rich neighborhood. They put up all the lights. They do the lawns. They clean everything. They raise people's children. They, they, they're they the ones who are the nannies. They're the ones who are the gardeners. They're the plumbers. They work in the kitchens. This is the world that my abuelos had me interacting with on a day-to-day basis. And it's the one that I carried with me through most of my life. And I would say it's only been in recent years in comparison to the grand scheme of things, as long as I've been alive, that my narrative of Mexico and Mexicans and, you know, the Chicanos or whatever you want to call them has really been changed because I met, you know, like rich Mexicans. I thought that I came from a place where everyone in my culture is very poor. (laughs) And so growing up with my abuelos, Um, And feeling like I was in conversation with them and feeling like I was a part of their, an extension of their legacy, I guess you would say. I was very troubled by the idea that, well, actually, no, we don't have a lot in common. You know, I don't speak Spanish. I I mean, I do now. (laughs) But I I couldn't make Mexican food. Uh, Growing up in such isolation in Oklahoma without a community, really, I didn't know how my people, quote-unquote, behaved, how we were around each other, what it meant to be a real Mexican or whatever. Um, And that existential crisis 
led me to take a job at this tortilla factory down the road. And it was at that tortilla factory where I learned a whole lot of things. And it, a lot of the things I learned actually didn't have a lot to do with like my culture, heritage, or ethnicity. It had a lot to do with just like what it means to be a worker, <laughs> what it means to be treated like you're less than. And at the same time, hold all the privileges I held just because a lot of my coworkers, even though we came from the same culture, we had such different experiences. I mean, these were some people who were like, some of them were undocumented. Um, some of them could barely speak English. And it just really highlighted to me, I guess, what a frail project identity and culture is because there's just hardly a roof you can build that will put even two people together because experiences are so different and everything is so complicated and nuanced that it, it was really my initiation into my journey of understanding. As you're talking, you know, I can only relate through my POV of being a black Southern kid growing up in, you know, kind of rural Tennessee. And as you begin to realize you are a person and that you are a person that moves through the world through certain cultures and spaces and places, you very quickly, especially when you're queer, you realize you don't fit into those places. That these boxes yeah. that are being assigned to everyone else, you don't really fit in. And there's this existential crisis of like, I don't fit. So do I belong? And if I don't belong, yeah. where do I belong to? And that for you as like a young queer you know, Latinx person, that seems very frustrating in Oklahoma, in a tortilla factory. <laughs> it's frustrating to me that identity is such a project and that figuring out who you are, what you are, how you should call yourself, it's also subject to trends, to how culture changes, to how language changes. And I eventually had to arrive at a place where I became more agnostic than I ever thought I would be about where I come from and who I am, because the only things I found that can't really be changed or taken from me are my memories and my time with my abuelos growing up. And those are the things that people can't challenge. And so I've I've lived there more and more lately, trying starting to see my abuelos, you know, my abuelos no longer with me. But mm -hmm. through I think a more accurate lens of like people rather than placeholders of like, well, that's my culture. That's my heritage. That's my ethnicity, whatever it is. I think it's more complicated than that. And so starting to look at them more as like actual human beings with dreams of their own and less of this like immigrant narrative that so often gets placed on people like them where they're just sort of like their job is to be the people who make a better life for their um, grandchildren, you know, and that narrative is so embedded in American culture that even when I thought I was critiquing it, I think I was kind of low key buying into it at the same time. <laughs> and so now I'm looking back and I'm like, yeah, I think that maybe a lot of the things my abuela did wasn't like Mexican culture. I think she was just weird. Yeah. <laughs> John Paul's abuelos were the first heroes he encountered in this coming-of-age story. But like any good story, it's made up of your good guys and bad guys. And I think to a certain extent, we are all taught that good triumphs over evil and it can become part of our own missions to fight for the right things against the people that are doing wrong. But... What happens when bad guys aren't all bad, but rather complicated? During a visit to his hometown, John Paul opened up a dating app, only to find that his high school bully, who had once made life so difficult for him, was also on the app, and presumably gay. Talk about complicated. With this person, uh, this person who made my life such a living hell, I realized that I had kind of assumed a lot of things about him. 
and I had sort of wanted to paint him in a certain light. Because you never want to think that someone who was so cruel to you, who could have done such horrible things to you, has something in common with you. And so both of us being closeted gay people back then, it it makes me feel like that's not fair. (laughs) I had this perfect villain set up for this story where I could understand myself as the victim of everything and I had nothing to do with, with that experience. I think I was very interested in looking in the ways that I wanted this person to be one-dimensional. I wanted this person to be my perfect monster because I had actually built so many other things around that idea. I had built the idea of needing to be successful, of needing to be better, needing to be the smartest person in the room, the funniest person in the room, all these other things in a quest for what? And the answer is, like any monster that gets made, it's there to represent the anxieties, there to represent all the things that you're trying to run from. And so I was using that image of him as fuel to keep me going. And I thought that if I took that image away, I wouldn't be as good anymore. I wouldn't have a reason to be pushing myself the way I'm pushing myself. It's masochistic in a way. It's just not healthy. But I found that I was afraid to dispose of that monster in a way because I thought, well, who am I without that monster? And for me, it's amplified by being formerly Catholic, being raised in the church, because, you know, growing up, I was certainly taught that there is a a virtuous and cleansing element to pain, to suffering, that I think that Catholicism is very interested in telling you that pain is worth it, that it means something. I remember in my elementary school, it was a thought that, you know, the more you suffer in life, like the martyrs, uh, you know, you can get years taken off your purgatory. You can skip the middleman and go to heaven. You can win a quicker, better, eternal life by being in pain. And so for me, those themes stuck with me. And that's the funny thing about themes. Even though I formally distanced myself from the church, I haven't thought of myself as a Christian or a Catholic in a very long time those ideas have stuck with me and they appear all the time. Making a conscious decision to opt out of some or even all of the cultural and religious groups we belong to and create new ones is not only incredibly difficult, but very scary. John Paul took the scary and flipped it on its head, using satire to create his own safe space with Ola Papi, an advice column and now book where people can write in and ask for pointers on just about anything. Ola Papi is a space where John Paul can express himself and spread hope, but also guide others in their very own identity journey. Being on the receiving end of so much advice through the years, through his family and through his religion, I was curious, how does he approach his safe space given that he's received so many bad suggestions in the past? It's technically about other people. It's people, complete strangers, writing to me about their experiences and then me taking that letter And using my own stories or using my own voice and kind of throwing myself into it. And so I think that's what excites me about the project. And it's my longest ongoing project of my life. You know, I can't, I can barely hold a job for longer than a year. Um, So it's amazing that Ola Poppy's still alive. But I've received so much bad advice over my lifetime. I think the funniest answer to this would be to not download Grindr. <laughs> Just because. <laughs> I mean, talk about a life that has been shaped by Grindr. It's mine. Yes. Uh, it it led me to some really interesting avenues. Uh, but, you know, like, I, I think I came out 
in the very like love is love, um, red equality, Facebook photo filter kind of era where, you know, we hadn't had marriage equality yet. And that really dominant strain of popular mainstream gay activism had that sort of Instagram friendly, very bubbly, very hopeful, very optimistic, but at the same time, so traditional and was such an appeal to sort of like cis hetero values. So a lot of it was just like, yes, I'm gay, but that doesn't mean that I'm a slut. That doesn't mean that I act like a woman. You know, it was very that. And that was way more socially acceptable as messaging back then than it is now. And so I got a lot of advice right after I came out that was along those lines, you know, like, oh, yeah, welcome to being gay. You don't have to act like those sissies. Like, you know, a lot of advice just about, like, making sure that I was appealing to the right people, that I was being an upstanding, virtuous gay person. It's so striking to me that me coming out at that time in Oklahoma, I was introduced to advice that nowadays would be unthinkable but back then it was popular yeah so i would say i got a lot of bad advice in 2012 (laughs) i was going through some columns of yours today and i came across one that actually fits perfectly with what you're saying and it was from 2019 i think and it was at out magazine when the column went to out Mm -hmm. and it was a reader writing in saying that they were hiv positive and depressed And what was so interesting about the story is that they had disclosed their status to a friend and the friend said to them, it's not that big of a deal being paused. And it was really confusing for this person. You answered this letter as someone that's not HIV positive in a really compassionate way. Do you remember this letter? And talk to me about what made you want to take this letter on. There's such a stigma around it. There's a moral dimension to it. There are people who you know, even when they're not blaming you, kind of sound like they're saying, oh, well, you should have been a little bit of a better person and that wouldn't have happened to you. That sentiment is so common. And so I really felt something for this letter writer because I I wanted to be a voice that said, actually, yes, I hear you and this is important and does matter. It's part of your life. And just validating that for them was important for me because sometimes the best advice for me anyway, is really just a conversation with someone who accepts your terms of what matters and what doesn't. If you say it matters, then it matters. And I think that that's what a good friend does. So and a lot of times in Ola Papi, I'm not always out to fix anyone's life. Sometimes I'm just out to be a good friend, like someone at a bar that you can talk to and I'll talk back and maybe you feel better at the end of it. And Regardless of how complicated the subject matter is, like in this case, it dealing with HIV status, I, I want to give that to as many people as I can. What struck me about this, rereading it today, was your ability to comfort someone in real time saying, I know what you're going through is complicated. You're sad. You're going through all these emotions. And what must not feel good is someone telling you those things are not valid. And that's like what everyone should remember. When someone comes to you for advice or help, you should always say, I hear you. I see you. And you're going to be okay. And, yeah. you know, for us, we're like black and brown men dealing in a world with a lot of HIV around us at all times. So, you know, it's important for us to always remember that, like, we're going to be okay, especially in these conversations. Like, if you are positive, there's access to care. If you're not, there's prep. There's so much out there. Like, you deserve to... Yeah, exactly. ...to live a life that's messy if you need. (laughs) So, before I let you go, can I ask for some advice? Yes, of course. Okay. Okay, so you (laughs) share a similar sentiment to me that the world kind of... Let's say it's complicated right now. There's a lot going on. 
you've been answering questions through the whole pandemic for the past few years, giving people a little bit of hope to make it through. Mm -hmm. What's your best advice right now to keep hope alive for all of us as we keep going through all this? What are you telling yourself? So I think of my past and I think about how I've really risen to every occasion that's been put in front of me when it was put in front of me and how people tend to become altogether different beasts when they actually have to cross that bridge, when they actually have to come face to face with something they're afraid of. Um, So realizing that I'm actually kind of a more competent person than I've ever given myself credit for. And I think most people are like that. I think most people are maybe a bit stronger than they think they are. And so you just need to be able to trust yourself that I think that there will be good things in there somewhere. And I think I'll be able to find them. For me, that really helps me every day. For John Paul and so many people living amongst these borders, the borders of geography, of identity, of culture, knowing who we are and where we fit in can be a lifelong search. But evolving into ourselves and our own story is often more important than the destination or checking a box. Knowing that you are healthy, knowing your status, having peace within body and mind can be a bigger marker of identity. And one I'm positive leads to a happier life in the long run. This has been In the Deep, Stories That Shape Us. Find this episode and others on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Don't forget to share, rate, and review if you enjoyed this conversation. This show is produced by Yvonne Sheehan and mastered by James Foster. Our show researcher is Jordan Raggio, and our writer is Yvette Lopez. A special shout out to our guest, John Paul Brammer. I'm your host, Zach Stafford. Zach Stafford.